invite you to take your Bibles and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4. Our text today is going to be verse 12 through verse 16 in a message entitled, Be Committed. We're continuing on in our series on distinctives of a gospel-shaped church. And 1 Timothy is the Apostle Paul writing to Timothy, who was serving at the church at Ephesus. Uh, he had joined the Apostle Paul during one of his later missionary journeys and was probably in his uh, 20s, maybe as, even as old as 30 by the time uh, this was written to him. And he was distinguished in his faith uh, by his diligent service to the Lord. Well, Paul gives Timothy instructions on how to lead the church. And while the specific context of this particular letter is an aging apostle writing to a son in the ministry, there's application for the church more broadly and application for us individually as well. Your level of commitment to things that matter and your level of commitment to your spiritual walk especially matters to God. I read a little piece about young people who began to pick up uh, musical abilities and started to practice and what it was that made them successful or not successful. And I started thinking about why some people excel in the things that they do and other people just remain mediocre or quit along the way. And David Brooks wrote a book entitled The Social Animal. And in it, he points to research that reveals the common denominator in attaining excellence in a field. And that common denominator is a long-term commitment to discipline and practice. And he referred to a study about musicians, as I mentioned. And he said, in 1997, Gary McPherson studied 157 randomly selected children as they picked out and learned a musical instrument. Some went on to become fine musicians and some faltered. McPherson searched for the traits that separated those who progressed from those who did not. IQ was not a good indicator or a predictor. Uh, sensitivity or math skills or income or even a sense of rhythm were not all that important. The best single predictor was a question that McPherson asked the students before they even selected their instruments. And here was the question. How long do you think you will play? The students who planned to play for a short time didn't become very proficient at all. The students who planned to play for a few years had modest success. But there were some children who said, in effect, I want to be a musician. I'm going to play my whole life. Those were the ones that excelled. When we look at this from a spiritual perspective, if we're going to be effective Christians, effective Christians are going to be people who approach their faith with a similar attitude. I'm going to follow Jesus with my entire life. It's not going to be only when it's convenient or when I have time or maybe when I'm in some type of crisis, but I'm going to follow Jesus with the entirety of my life. Those Christians may stumble along the way when they say that. Uh, we all are inconsistent at times, if we're honest, but over the long haul, we'll stay with it if that's our mindset. So the big idea is be committed in your Christian life. Be a person who is in it for the long haul. 
I begin reading now in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 12. He says, don't let anyone despise your youth, but set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Until I come, give your attention to public reading, exhortation, and teaching. Verse 14, don't neglect the gift that is in you. It was given to you through prophecy with the laying on of hands by the council of elders. Practice these things. Be committed to them so that your progress may be evident to all. Verse 16, pay close attention to your life and your teaching. Persevere in these things. For in doing this, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Let's consider three helpful reminders on how to be committed. The first reminder is pay close attention to your life. He begins by telling Timothy, don't let anyone despise your youth, but set an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Then he says a little bit further down, pay close attention to your life. So Paul is saying to Timothy, you need to pay careful and close attention to your life because it matters. It's important not just to pay attention, but to pay close attention. Timothy, as I've already noted, was younger. Uh, Because he was, he was subject to probably the errors of youth, as well as being criticized by people who were older than him. So to confront that, Paul's saying to him, listen, you live a life that is lived in a way that nobody can despise you No one can look down on you because of your age. Don't be intimidated by your age or by what anyone might think of it. Now, the word youth was used in those days to refer to people who may have been young teenagers all the way up to the age of 30. It's actually not all that unusual now around the world in international context for people to speak of youth ministry. And they're talking about people that may be up even in their late 20s. And Timothy may have been in that age range. Some think that he was already 30 or beyond. But in comparison, Paul was probably more like 70, perhaps, at this point. And youth is a relative term depending on who is speaking. And he says to him, set an example for other believers. Now, how is he supposed to set an example? In speech, what he said. In conduct, what he did. In love, in his concern for others. Faith or faithfulness. And then purity or personal holiness. Now you'll note that the first two are outward qualities. The last three are inward qualities. These are characteristics that a church should also look for in a pastor. Specifically in the leadership of the church. But they are also helpful guidelines for all Christians to follow after. When he references speech here, we're reminded that it's very easy to get yourself in trouble with your words. Some people talk too much. They say too much and get themselves in trouble. Some people say things that are unwise or just ignorant in what they say. And one thing is for sure, your speech reveals what's in your heart. 
the words that you use, the things that you say to other people reveals what's going on down deep in your heart. And Timothy was to show people what a self-controlled tongue looks like. And this is of great importance for people who are leading in the church, and it's also of great importance for every Christian. The tongue is referred to both literally and metaphorically in the Bible, in Psalms and Proverbs and Ephesians and James. And the tongue is a small part of the body, but yet the scripture says that it has in it the power of life and death. Proverbs 10 and verse 19 says, when words are many, sin is not absent. Proverbs 10 and verse 32 says, the lips of the righteous know what is fitting. Proverbs 13 and verse 3 says, he who guards his lips guards his life. Listen to what it says in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 29. Let no unwholesome, that, that word unwholesome there is literally rotten. And it says, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the needs of the moment, that it may give grace to those who hear. And then finally, James chapter 3 and verse 2 says, For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is mature, able to control the whole body. So there are two things here that are incredibly important as it relates to our speech. The words that you use reveal your heart. And then the other part of that is the words that you use reveal your spiritual maturity or your lack thereof. These are evaluating points for us of what's going down deep, going on deep down in us, and then the progress that we've made in our faith in God. Now, conduct here means uh, life or manner of life. And in our day-to-day existence, we're to be an example to others. So this is integrity, how you spend your time and your money. This is your priorities, what's really important to you. This is your home life, how you're ordering things and leading in your home. All of these are contributing factors to your manner of life. And if we are professing believers who live no differently than the world, how does that affect our testimonies? How can we expect that if we talk like the world, we act like the world, we live like the world, how can we expect that anybody is going to see the love of God in us and the holiness of Jesus living in our lives? Love here focuses on relationships. This is biblical love that is self-giving. It's a caring manner. It's seeking the highest good of other people. This is love that comes from God. 1 Corinthians 13 says, love is patient, it's kind, it does not envy, it is not boastful, it is not arrogant, it is not rude, self-seeking, or irritable, and it does not keep a record of wrongs. And then faith could be faithfulness, which is a fruit of the Spirit, that's something God does in you, but it could also point to the exercise of your faith in God, because without faith, it is impossible to please God. You have to exercise faith in order to please him and to honor him. And then finally, purity. Purity is moral purity. Romans 13 and verse 14 says, Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. And that applies to 
a number of different areas of our lives, not just sexual purity, but other things that we might do that are dishonoring to God. And all of these characteristics taken together comprise the testimony of your life. So let me ask you this question. What is the testimony of your life in this moment that you're living in? What are the words that you're saying in the life that you're living in the faith that you're exercising and the purity that you're maintaining? What are those things saying about your relationship with God? Are you paying close attention to your life? You need to pay close attention to your life. The second reminder is communicate the truth. Look now again in verse 13. He says, until I come, give your attention to public reading, exhortation, and teaching. Now, I've told you before that truth is that which corresponds to reality. And if we're looking for what corresponds to reality, we need look no further than the Word of God. Because the Word of God is true. And the word of God is to be on display front and center in the worship of the church. And it's to be front and center in our own individual lives as well. John Stott wrote that nothing is more important for the life and health of the church than biblical preaching. Churches live, grow, and flourish by the word of God. He notes here public reading. That's important because it's always been the practice of God's people for the leaders of the church to read the word of God aloud in the congregation, the body of gathered believers. In fact, the public reading of scripture is one of the most ancient time-honored practices of God's people in the Bible. We see it throughout the Bible. Think about Moses. Moses read the scripture uh, at the foot of Mount Sinai. They had been Uh, rescued from slavery. And it says that Moses in Exodus 24 and verse 7 took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. Later in Israel's history, the law had been lost for a long time. But you remember the Bible says something profoundly interesting that they found it in the temple. Can you imagine that the word was so out of the mind of the people? And so out of the priority of the people that they didn't even know where it was. And then they found it. And King Josiah brought about reforms that began with the public reading of Scripture. Maybe this is a word to some churches today who focus on a lot of different things except the main thing. That aren't front and center with the Word of God. That the Word of God takes a back seat to everything else. And that says to us it cannot be. Ezra and Nehemiah tell of God's people returning from exile, and they read for hours. The Bible says from morning early until midday, and they also had a special platform, basically what uh, has been referred to as the first pulpit, uh, the first place of the public reading of the scripture in that manner. And then Jesus, when he began his public ministry, he, he read the scripture publicly. In Luke 4 and verse 16, it says, he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as usual, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up uh, to read. Paul, in Colossians 4 and verse 16, after this letter has been read at your gathering, he said, have it read also in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. 
So time and again in the Bible, from the Old Testament to the New, we find these examples of the public reading of Scripture. And it should be the same in our church. It should be the same in our worship. It should be important to us that, that this take place. And then there's exhortation. That's uh, technically a part of preaching, exhortation is, uh, in this sense. Uh, but basically, it's the exposition and the application of the passages read. So you're reading it, but then you're also explaining it. So it makes uh, sense for people to be able to understand. And the Holy Spirit uh, helps us even further with that. And it's to encourage and call people to live out the passages and apply it to their life. So we're saying, this is the word. Now you need to go do it. So when I say to you, you need to pay careful attention to your life, that's exhortation. It's saying, listen, these are the things that God is saying to you are important. And if you're going to pay careful attention to your life, I want to exhort you toward that. I want to exhort you toward good speech, speech that honors God. I want to exhort you toward love. I want to exhort you to what God is encouraging in you. And exhortation of Scripture is so important. And then there's teaching, which is similar, but it's also different. Teaching is instruction and doctrine. In 2 Timothy 3 and verse 16, it says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine or for teaching. The word teaching that is used here in 1 Timothy, interestingly, is the same word that Jesus used in the Great Commission. When he says, go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, it's the same concept. So Paul is reiterating what Jesus said, and he said it's important that you read the Scripture publicly. It's important that you exhort people to actually do it, and it's important that you teach them and instruct them in doctrine. But now there's something else here I don't want you to miss. If you've been following along in this little study that we've been in, in 1 Timothy, you know one of the main issues that Timothy was dealing with that Paul was addressing in church were false teachers and false teaching. Public reading, exhortation, and teaching collectively are methods of opposing false teaching. So don't miss this. People need to be taught what to believe, but they also need to be taught what not to believe. They need to be warned of errors. They need to be warned of half-truths that are nothing more than lies. And Paul is calling Timothy to be radically expositional in his teaching. He was to be the opposite of the false teachers. And without the priority of being word-centered, there is no God-honoring worship. Timothy was to study and pass on what he had learned. When we come together as God's people, we come together to worship him, to be in awe of him, to pray, to confess our sins, to give, to encourage one another. But we come together to focus on the word. Because through the word, we are strengthened in our faith. The words of Charles Spurgeon remind us of how much the scripture strengthens us. And he said this in part. He said, you have lost a dear child. Was there not a word of the Lord to cheer you? You lost your property. Was there not a passage in the scripture to meet the disaster? 
You've been slandered. Was there not a word to console you? You were sick and depressed. Has not the Lord provided a comfort for you in that case? And then he says, I will not multiply questions. But the fact is, you were never so far up, but that the word of the Lord was up with you. And you were never so far down, but what the word of the Lord was down with you. If you want to be committed, you need to make the commitment in your life to communicate the truth. Now, this is directly applicable to us, not only in our public worship and our gathered church settings, but as we're going. Remember the pattern in Deuteronomy that we're teaching as we're going, especially in the family context, that, that it's front and center in our lives. So as we're making decisions, we're helping our kids make decisions, we're interacting as husband and wife, and we're fellowshipping with other Christians. We have all these different opportunities put before us where we're learning and we're teaching and encouraging each other as we go. This is why it's so important that the people who are speaking into your life are people who are speaking truth into your life. See, what people sometimes do, especially when they fall into sinful patterns of behavior, is they surround themselves with other people who just tell them what they want to hear or who are wrapped up in the same things that they're wrapped up in. Well, that's the blind leading the blind. You're going to go off the cliff if you're not careful. So you need to be sure that the people who are speaking into your life, the people that you're really listening to, the people that you're valuing what they say, you need to be sure that those people have a desire to honor God as well. It doesn't mean that we don't have relationships with lost people. We should because we should just give other people dignity and love them and serve them well because we are in Christ. We also want to reach them for Christ. But the people who are in your closest circle in your life, you need to be sure that they're people who are going in the same direction as you are. And the Lord would want you to go. The third reminder is do not neglect the gift that is in you. Look now at verse 14. He says, don't neglect the gift that is in you. It was given to you through prophecy with the laying on of hands by the council of elders. Now, Paul warns Timothy here not to neglect the gift, and he's making a reference to how it came to him. He said it was through prophecy, it was through the laying on of hands. Uh, This is specifically, in this case, the ordination of Timothy when the church leaders laid their hands on him and they set him apart for a a specific ministry. This is where we get our concept in uh, the offices of the church of laying hands on and setting them apart for a specific ministry. Uh, But there's more here because he's speaking of spiritual gifts. Uh, Harry Ironside said it's evident that the elders of the church uh, had met together with the Apostle Paul when Timothy was about to launch into full-time service and had laid their hands on him, commending him to God in prayer. But the word here is gift. And it actually refers to the varying spiritual gifts that are given to Timothy but also to all believers. So think about it this way. If you're saved, if you've repented of your sins and you've believed in Jesus Christ, then you have been gifted spiritually for service to God. Every believer has been. And 
these gifts are not for the building up of yourself. These gifts are for the building up of the church. And when the church is built up through the collective spiritual gifts of the people, then the church advances, but also the kingdom of God advances. And it all works together. And a spiritual gift has been defined as a spirit-given ability to serve God in the church. Now, there are a couple of primary passages in the Bible referring to spiritual gifts, and then there are some secondary ones as well. But uh, Romans chapter 12 and 1 Corinthians chapter 12 are the primary chapters in the Scripture that refer to the spiritual gifts. And what we also know, uh, according to what the Bible teaches, is that God gives these gifts as he chooses. And he gives these gifts normally at salvation. So the best way to discover your spiritual gift, first of all, is know you have one. Some people think this only for the super spiritual or those who are more mature in the faith that have the spiritual gifts. That's not the case at all. Uh, If you're saved, you have them. But the best way to discover them is by actually serving, by doing something. Now, the uh, spiritual gift surveys can be helpful to a point. Uh, but they're not ultimately as helpful as following after the Spirit of God and God giving you a certain burden for areas of ministry that might be within your line of spiritual gifts. Now, there's something else here that we'll notice. It is possible to waste your gift. It is possible to not use what God has given to you. How do we know that? Well, the warning's right here in front of us. Do not neglect the gift that is in you. Church, it would be a shame to waste what God has entrusted to you. If you are a blood-bought child of God and you are gifted spiritually to serve God, then if you are not serving, that means that a part of the body of Christ is not as strong as it could be. And I think that's one of the best illustrations of what the church is. It's a body because a body has many different parts. All the parts are important, even the parts that might be thought of as lesser. But all of them come together collectively so that the body functions as it should. And we draw that illustration into the church and we recognize that if part of the body's not functioning, the church is not going to be as healthy as it could be. Does that mean that the ministry's not going forward? No, God's going to carry his ministry forward. In fact, I think at some point, God will bring other people in with those gifts if there are people who are neglecting the gift. But if you're not using your gift, you're missing out on the blessing. You're missing out on the joy of serving God and being a part of of his people and of his family. I think of the parable of the talents in uh, Matthew chapter 25. You remember Jesus uh, leads up to it by making it clear that he was about to leave for an undisclosed amount of time. And he delegates responsibility to the stewards But in the parable of talents, he describes a man who goes on a journey. And when this man goes on a journey, he entrusts his wealth and his possessions to his servants. To one servant, he gives five talents. To another servant, he gives two talents. And to the third servant, he gives one talent. Now, a talent referred to is a unit of measurement used to refer uh, to the weighing of gold or silver. The owner entrusted these servants with a measure of his wealth proportionate to their abilities. So the owner is saying to the servant, this belongs to me, but now I'm going to entrust it to you. 
and I want you to take whatever I've given you, and I want you to use it to the fullest, and when I return, I want to see that you have been a good steward of it. The one who was given five talents and the one who was given two were good stewards, investing in such a way that when the owner returned, they had doubled what he had originally given them. The third servant, however, went away and he dug a hole in the ground and he hid the owner's money. When the owner did return, the servants who were faithful were praised and they were entrusted with even more. Remember, this is not only a temporal parable, this is a kingdom parable. And Jesus is making the point that what you do with what you have now matters, but what you do with what you have now is going to have some influence over what God entrusts to you eternally in his kingdom. And if he can't trust you with what he's given to you now, to use it as a good manager, as a good steward in the kingdom, then why would he entrust you with even more in eternity? And the third servant went away and dug a hole in the ground and hid the money, and he didn't get the praise, and he didn't get entrusted with even more. He's described as a wicked, lazy, worthless servant, and he's thrown out of his master's presence. So the owner, the master, is meant to represent Jesus. The servants are followers of Jesus. He will one day return, but in the meantime, he has gifted us, and he's left us here to do his work in the world. So here's the question. What are you doing with what God has entrusted to you? Have you identified your spiritual gifts Are you using those along with the other things the Lord has entrusted to you? And are you a good steward? We are to learn to surrender to the Holy Spirit, to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit as it applies to the use of our spiritual gifts. It's a blessing for us. It's a blessing for those closest to us. It's a blessing for the church. And ultimately, it's a blessing to the world. I say this to you in closing, what Paul says to Timothy. Practice these things. Practice these things. Look again in verse 15. Be committed to them so that your progress may be evident to all. Verse 16 says... Persevere in these things, for in doing this, you will save both yourself and your hearers. So we've got practice, progress, and perseverance. Practice is to meditate carefully on. Think deeply about these things. Be committed to them. It's literally be in these things and let them be wholly absorbed. You see, part of the problem today when we think about this issue of commitment in the church is that we're so distracted by everything else. We're absorbed with everything else. Our time is taken up by everything else. Our resources are committed in so many different directions. And the Word of God is saying to us, listen, be in the middle of it. Don't do this half-heartedly. 
Do it wholly as unto the Lord. And he'll be honored by that. And you'll be blessed to be a part of what God is doing. And in it, as you practice it, you will make progress. It should be evident to all. Jesus said in Matthew 5 and verse 16, In the same way, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Let me, let me ask you this way. When God looks into your heart and your soul, what does he see? Where are you right now in your spiritual relationship with him? What, what's motivating you and compelling you? What, what do you really care about? Is it the things that are ultimate and eternal that are helping you, that are helping you grow in your likeness of Jesus? Are you making steady progress? Listen, I understand sometimes it's two steps forward and three steps back. It's not a, it's not a steady climb. We struggle. We're still in the flesh. We're living in the middle of a sin-fallen world. This is, this is not a, a life of perfection. It's a life of progress. So that I'm growing to be more like Jesus. So that next year, this time, I will be able to see that there's some kind of spiritual progress in my life. Are you progressing in your faith? And then the perseverance. That's just keep on keeping on. That's the idea of not being discouraged. Maybe somebody here just needs to hear the message. Don't quit. Don't give in. Don't give up. Don't stop trying. Keep leaning in. Persevere, especially under trials. Because if you persevere under trials, you'll be blessed and you'll receive the crown of life. In fact, all genuine believers will persevere in the faith. And that's what the last part of that verse is referring to. It doesn't matter if there are peaks or valleys or everything in between. We will persevere in the faith because God has promised to finish what he has started in us. God does not save us by his grace and then say, hey, do the best you can now. No, the same grace that he saves you with is the grace that is super abundant when you wake up in the morning and you go to work. The grace that he has saved you with is the same grace that will help you as you're leading and and shaping your family. The same grace that he has saved you with is the grace that will help you when you're going through a difficult time. It's grace upon grace. That's the message of the gospel. And what God has started in us, God will finish. But in the meantime, he says, practice these things. Make sure that you're using your talents well for the glory of God. Let's bow our heads together for a moment as we pray. I don't know where you are today spiritually. Uh, Maybe you're walking with Christ and you're progressing toward that high calling that is in Christ Jesus. If you are, I just want to encourage you and exhort you to keep pressing on. uh, Keep moving forward. Keep staying faithful and God will help you. Maybe you're somewhere in between and you're really wanting to make a difference. You're wanting to use your talents. You're wanting to uh, apply your spiritual gifts in the body. You're wanting to connect. I I don't know exactly what that's going to look like for you, but I can tell you the first step of that is just to say, Lord, 
Here I am, would you use me? Would you use me? And then if you've never repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus Christ by faith, today could be the day of your salvation. Your life could change forever. In this moment, you thought you were coming just to a, a, a service. You were coming to a scheduled event. And yet you came to meet God. Whatever your need is in these moments, I ask you to look to him in faith. Father, we thank you today for the blessing that we have to gather here together. We thank you for your word that is so clear, that protects us from error, and it also guides us in the truth. Help us to practice these things well, to persevere in them, uh, to see the fulfillment of all that you have promised. And I pray if there are steps of faith that need to be taken today or uh, commitments that need to be renewed, I pray that people would begin right where they are. They'd lean in on that grace. They'd be grateful for the gospel. And God, you would do a work that only you can do. We give this time of close over to you. Work in us as you see fit. And help us to respond in faith. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.